We're looking tonight in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. I want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there. I want to review a little bit about what we covered last week in verses 8 through 18. You'll remember that in those verses, Paul is exhorting Timothy to steadfastness. He's encouraging him to suffer without shame, both for the testimony of the Lord and for him as the prisoner of the Lord, for the Apostle Paul. And one of the ways that Paul motivates Timothy is to remind him of his salvation, to remind him of all that God God has done for him. He's called him and set him apart to a life pleasing to God, to a walk of holiness. He saved him not by his own works, not by human merit of any kind, but solely by his grace. And we looked at, related to that, these doctrines of election and predestination, how they fit with God's sovereign choice, how God did choose in eternity past those that would be saved, and how he sent at a particular point in history Christ to accomplish redemption through his death and resurrection, and how he then, continuing that process, calls his out, continues to call his own out today through the proclamation of the gospel, reconciling his own to himself. In addition to these truths of the gospel, Paul also pointed to human examples that Timothy could emulate. He pointed first to himself. Paul certainly suffered for the gospel as much as anybody, all by the will of God. And he pointed, as part of pointing to himself as an example, he gave Timothy two commands that Paul himself had faithfully obeyed over the course of his ministry. One was to retain the standard of sound words, upon which sound doctrine and then subsequently healthy Christian living is built. And secondly, he commanded Timothy to guard the deposit that had been entrusted to him. He's talking about the message of the gospel. We talked about the fact that the gospel is constantly under attack. It's, uh, it's, it's under attack by Satan. It's under attack by, under attack by the world system that Satan operates. And there's a need, not just for the Apostle Paul, not just for Timothy, but for us to continue to guard the gospel and pass it down to the next generation in its purest form. Now, Paul also pointed to the examples of his associates, both bad and good. He pointed to those who had deserted him after his arrest. And he mentioned two guys in particular, Phyclus and Hermogenes, and said, don't do like those guys. Don't don't desert. Continue to be faithful. Hold fast. He also pointed to Onesiphorus, whose name means help giver, and he had certainly done that, as as an example that Timothy should be like. He was clearly one who was not ashamed of Christ and not ashamed of the Apostle Paul. He sought Paul out, as difficult as it was to find where Paul was when he was arrested and imprisoned at Rome. Onesiphorus sought him out. He visited him several times. Paul said that he refreshed him often. He also had faithfully served the body of Christ at Ephesus. So with that review now, we want to move into chapter 2. And what we're going to see is Paul's really continuing the same theme. He's continuing this exhortation to steadfastness and faithfulness in gospel ministry that he spoke about in chapter 1. As you see from your outline, he'll describe both the means and the method of ministry. He'll give three illustrations of disciplined faithfulness from three different spheres of life in verses 3 to 6. And then he'll give a closing word of encouragement for Timothy to carefully consider what he said. Let's read the text now. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we'll read verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read from the New American Standard. You therefore, my son, 
Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Okay, we want to start out with the means of faithful ministry in verse 1. It's the grace of Christ. Paul now commands Timothy, his beloved son in the Christian faith. And just as an aside, I love the way that Paul deals with Timothy. On the one hand, he doesn't hesitate to remind him that he's an apostle of Christ. He's been commissioned by Christ, and with that carries authority. But on the other hand, he's his son. He's a father to Timothy, not a literal physical father. But he came to Christ, Timothy did, through Paul's ministry. So he's both authoritative and tender at the same time. I think that's what a father has to be. A father has to be that in his own family. And I think that's the model for authority even for leadership in the church. There's an authority that comes with that, and there's a tenderness in relationship. And we see that very clearly in this letter to Timothy, really in both of his letters to Timothy. Earlier, Paul had reminded Timothy that he had been saved by God's grace, and now he's telling him, look, you're going to be kept by God's grace as well. You're going to be strengthened by his grace and sustained by him as you continue to serve in Christian ministry. Now, it's a bit of an unusual construction. Let me explain what I mean by that. Literally, the verse says, be strengthened, that's a passive verb, be strengthened in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. Now, what's clear is Paul's not commanding Timothy to muster up all the uh, courage and all the strength that he has on his own and just buckle down and get it done. He's not saying that. But it is a command. It's a command to Timothy to be strengthened, implying there is some responsibility on Timothy's part. While at the same time, it's a command to be strengthened in Christ's grace. Now, we already talked about the fact that grace is unmerited favor from God. So to me, as I read that, there's a question in my mind. How do you, how do you get strengthened in something that's unmerited favor from somebody else? God does it. But the one being strengthened must cooperate with it. And I think the key, the answer to that question is God has provided means of grace for us. We must let the Lord fill us with strength by taking advantage of those means of grace and strengthening that God himself has provided. I'm sure many of you know what those are. First, it's the word of God. We read, we meditate upon, we listen to instruction from the word of God, and that's a way that we're strengthened in the grace of Christ. Secondly, we communicate with the Lord through prayer. God speaks to us through his word. We speak to God through prayer. That's a means that God has provided for us to stay in touch with him, to talk with him, to have communion with him. And that's something that you need to do every day. It's not just something that you do when you come to church on Sunday or Wednesday nights. You you need to have regular time with the Lord in both of those disciplines. For me, what I like to do is read through a passage of scripture in the morning, and then pray through initially what that passage is saying. And you can do that with any passage of scripture. You can learn about the character of God from any passage of scripture. 
Now, sometimes you have to think about that. I mean, when you're reading the genealogies, for example, in First Chronicles, it's a little tougher. Uh, but even then, you can think about what God had done and what that genealogy describes, you know, from Adam down to the 12 tribes of Israel. That's all something that God had accomplished in bringing about the nation of Israel. So I just think that's a very helpful way for us, for, for you, as part of your quiet time with the Lord or your devotional, whatever you want to call it, just to read first the scripture and to hear from God, to think about what he's saying to you through his word, and then to communicate that back through him, to him through prayer. A third way, a third means of grace is what we're doing here tonight. It's fellowship with other believers. It's praying for one another the way that we have opportunity to do. It's encouraging one another. It's serving one another. Uh, that's vital. Uh, being part of the local church and being involved in fellowship with other believers is vital for Staying strong in the grace of Christ. Using, going along with that, using the spiritual gift that God has given you as a believer. Every one of you have one as a believer. You have a spiritual gift. And you exercise that gift not for yourself. You exercise it for the benefit of others, for the edification of others. All of these things are vital for walking in the spirit, being strengthened by the grace which is in Christ Jesus. In order to be faithful in ministry to others, we have to be faithful in in our own relationship with God, faithful in taking advantage of those means of grace and staying strong in that grace. Well, verse 2 then gives us the method of faithful ministry, and that's entrusting the truth to faithful men. Paul says, The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. That's four generations through which not just the gospel, not just what we share as the gospel as far as you're sinful, you need a savior, Christ died for your sins, he rose from the dead, you accept him as your Lord and Savior. That's the essence of the gospel. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. I think what Paul is talking about here, though, is that whole body of Christian truth that passes in this verse from the Apostle Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others. What is it that Timothy is to pass along? It's the teaching of Paul that Timothy has been privileged to witness uh, amongst many other witnesses. Now we can look at some references in Scripture where the early church recognized the importance of sound doctrine. That's what Paul's talking about passing along here. The earliest church at Jerusalem recognized this. Acts 2.42 says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Even those spiritual disciplines that I was talking about earlier show up there. I read an article this week by a guy named Robert Culver, and he was talking about the importance of trained men in the church passing along the truth. And I think that's exactly what Paul is talking about to Timothy here. Culver writes this, Such mandates for giving constant attention to the apostles' doctrine, that is, doctrines announced in the Old Testament, refined by Jesus, illuminated by the Spirit, enlarged by apostles, and uniform in all the churches, would have been impossible to effect without a staff of exponents, teachers and elders, educated for their vocation. The churches everywhere were in immediate need for the services of teachers who had mastered the body of doctrine received from the founders, the founders being the apostles. Now certainly the content of Paul's instruction 
would have included the revelation that he especially got as an apostle of Christ and the apostle to the Gentiles. New revelation about the person and work of Christ, salvation by grace through faith in Christ, the mystery of the church, even eschatology that we see in First and Second Thessalonians. But it would also include the Old Testament revelation that Paul had so thoroughly been brought up in as a student at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the famous teachers in the nation of Israel. Paul was, I mean, you think about God's wisdom in choosing Paul. He, in the first place, was such a trophy of grace because he started out as a persecutor of the church, as opposed to Christ. Christ radically converted him. And then you have a man here that is thoroughly equipped with the revelation of God from the Old Testament scriptures and through whom God is going to provide new revelation about this new entity called the church. I think about a guy like Charles Feinberg. Feinberg was a guy, a Jewish man, who had trained for the rabbinic, to be a rabbi, let's say, in Judaism, and he came to Christ. And, I mean, he went to Dallas Seminary after that, and he knew more Hebrew coming in probably than he did going out, just because of what he'd forgotten. But he had known Uh, all the Old Testament revelation before coming to Christ, and then having that as a background, he was just well-equipped to be a teacher of the full revelation of God. Paul's instruction also would include the kingdom of God as it's traced through Scripture. It says that explicitly in Acts 28, that Paul taught those who came to him in his first Roman imprisonment about the kingdom of God. I'm sure he did that on many other occasions as well. So, What Paul is talking about here is really passing along from one generation to the next the whole counsel of God. Howard's not here tonight, but if he were here, he would say he wanted Timothy to be a Bible man. And he wanted Timothy to train other Bible men to faithfully pass along what had been passed to him. So that's what he's talking about when he says he wants Timothy to entrust these things to faithful men. What about the men themselves? They're men of proven character. They're faithful. They'll hold fast to the faith themselves and be able to teach it to others as well. You look at Paul's modus operandi in the book of Acts. This was a high priority for him, was to appoint leaders in these individual churches in the cities in which he visited and did his first missionary work. We see that, for example, in Acts 4.23, At the end of his first missionary journey, Luke says this, And when they, that is Paul and Barnabas, had appointed elders for them in every church, each city having a different church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. I think we talked earlier about the fact that Timothy and Titus themselves were not pastors in the way that we think about that term today. They were Paul's right-hand men. They were not apostles themselves, but they were Paul's associates and did the work very similar to Paul in taking the gospel to places where Christ had not been named and just working as his teammates. They, too, had the responsibility of helping assemblies, local assemblies, identify faithful men in their locations and appointing them as elders. Paul writes to Titus about this when Titus is on the island of Crete. Titus 1.5 says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And, of course, in Titus 1, Paul goes on to uh, describe what those elder qualifications were. 
And part of that is to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Paul orders Timothy to do the same thing in Ephesus. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And later in chapter 3, he gives Timothy again guidelines very similar to Titus 1 for what a faithful man looks like. It's guidelines for those who desire to be overseers, part of which is that they be able to teach. That means first knowing the truth themselves and then being able to communicate that to others so that they can understand it. These faithful men are to be well-trained in the doctrines of Scripture. Now, the way that we normally think about that happening today is typically through Bible college or seminary. And that's a great way to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I loved my seminary experience. It was a very challenging time in my life. I spent five years studying the Word of God when I was out in California. I couldn't get enough of it. I absolutely loved it. And I came from a background that had not been really strong, even though I'd grown up in the church. It wasn't a strong teaching church, doctrinally. I had not gone to Bible college, and a lot of stuff was new to me. But I think the best way to pass along the doctrines that Paul is talking about here to Timothy is within the local church. That's certainly the context that he's talking about doing it here in Second Timothy. These faithful men are then to pass along the truth to others, it says in verse 2. Now, others would certainly include other faithful men that they're to train and pass along the truth that way. But I think others here is broader than that. He's talking about passing the truth along to all believers, believers in the local assemblies of the church. And so the doctrines of the Christian faith pass from one generation to the next. Now, let me clarify, we're not talking about apostolic succession the way that the Roman Catholic Church teaches. In fact, if you look at those four generations that we see in 2 Timothy 2.2, only one is an apostle. Paul passes it along to Timothy, who passes along to faithful men and to others. So it's not the office of the apostle that passes down. It's the apostolic doctrine itself. And Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2. He says that the church, the household of God, has been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Those are New Testament prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That illustration only makes sense if you understand how a building is built, right? You lay a foundation and then you build upon that building. You don't lay a foundation again on the second floor. There's one foundation, and that was made up of the apostles and the prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. What Paul's talking about in 2 Timothy are faithful men whom God has gifted to teach fixed apostolic doctrine that's contained in the scriptures, to lead and to build up local assemblies in his body throughout the world through their growth in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And again, Paul talks about this in Ephesians 4 also. He lists the offices there through which this happens. Ephesians 4:11 through 13 says, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets. That's very similar to what he said back in chapter 2. Those were the foundational offices of the church. Some as evangelists, and that's what we would call today a missionary, somebody who goes and proclaims Christ where he is not presently known. 
and some as pastors and teachers. I think these are the faithful men that he's talking about in 2 Timothy 2.2. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, through the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As we get to back in 2 Timothy 2, as we get to verse 3, Paul's calling Timothy to suffer and endure hardship with him, like he did in chapter 1, in the midst of this divine task of passing the truth through faithful men. And in verses 3 through 6, he gives three illustrations uh, of noble endurance of hardship to make his case. And those three illustrations are the good soldier, the victorious athlete, and the hardworking farmer. Let's look at the good soldier in verses 3 through 4. Verse 3 says literally, suffer hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. The verb is the same one that Paul used earlier in chapter 1, verse 8. It means literally to suffer ill treatment as a soldier in the war for truth. The Christian life is a battle. It's a spiritual war. And Paul doesn't shy away from that language in other places, in other letters that he writes. He says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 9, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense. Ephesians 6 is probably the the passage that we think about most often when we think about spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's very similar to what we hear in 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Romans 13, 12. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And then later in this same letter, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul himself talks about the fight that he has been in. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Now, Back in chapter 2, Paul is distinguishing the soldier who's on active duty from the one who's standing down or on furlough. That soldier on active duty must have a singularity of purpose. He's required by his position in the military not to entangle himself in the affairs of everyday life in the same way that a civilian can. And he does that in order to please the one who enlists him for that service. Now, Paul, and I made this point earlier, I think it's really important as you read through 2 Timothy. I think the letter itself is primarily aimed at men like Timothy and others that really are going to devote themselves to gospel ministry. I think there's certainly application for all of us as believers. But I think even as you think about that, and as you think about this letter being aimed at what we would call today people as pastors or in vocational ministry, I think it's important to recognize what he's not saying with this illustration about the soldier. He's not saying that they are to completely withdraw from the world and live a life of monasticism. If you look through church history, there have been lots of people who have done that. He's not saying that he's to lead a life of asceticism, abstaining from any kind of pleasure or leisure. Think about it. Even soldiers get R&R, right? And they get it in order to be able to be refreshed and get back in the battle. He's not saying that they're to lead a life of celibacy. In fact, if you look at the qualifications in Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, most of those have to do with how a man loves and leads his own family first as a qualification for his leading in the household of God. 
He's also not saying that a minister of the gospel cannot have another occupation as a means of supporting himself. Now, I don't think that's the ideal, but there's many, many countries in the world where pastors are bivocational. They have to be. They serve congregations that can't afford to support them in the way that they should. Paul himself made tents when he needed to, to, to support his own ministry. The Bible actually teaches against all of these philosophies that I just mentioned. What Paul is saying is that a minister of the gospel has to be careful not to entangle himself in anything that takes away from his primary role of being a teacher and living example of the word of God. And he does that to please the one who enlisted him in that role, and that's God himself. Also, like a good soldier, he must endure and be faithful in his duties, even in the midst of great opposition, and he will face opposition. That's what Paul's commanding Timothy to do here, and that's what we have to be ready for as well. Well, The second illustration he uses is that of the victorious athlete. Paul uh, encourages Timothy to disciplined endurance like that of an athlete. Now, I've never served in the military. I've never worked as a farmer. That's the third illustration. I have to say that I've always admired those that did just because of the hard work that both of those take. I have been involved in athletics from my youth up, and I've not competed as an Olympic athlete by any stretch of the imagination, but I have a little bit more understanding of what he's talking about when he speaks about the disciplined training of an athlete. An athletic competition, like warfare, is an excellent metaphor for the Christian life. The Greeks, of course, love their games as much as we do today as Americans. And I would argue that uh, sports, like music, is a universal language. Everywhere in the world, people play sports. And again, the New Testament writers don't hesitate to draw upon that example, that analogy, to make their point. For example, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice as part of that illustration the idea of looking to the future reward. That's what an athlete does, for sure. That's what we do as Christians. The Bible is full of looking to the ultimate reward of being with God forever in a new body and a new creation as a means of sustaining us during the present time. We go back to 1 Corinthians 9. It's interesting. 1 Corinthians 9 is another letter of Paul. He uses these same three illustrations in that chapter. Farmer, an athlete, and a soldier. And here's what he says in chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control, or discipline is another way to translate that word, in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. That's the running illustration. Now he turns to boxing. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. 
I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. He's talking about the discipline it takes, in this case, to curb his own bodily appetites in order to serve Christ. Now here in 2 Timothy, Paul says that the winning athlete must compete according to the rules. Namanos is the Greek word there. It means, as it sounds, lawfully or rightfully. One commentator says this, In the Greek games, which continued for centuries under Roman rule and would have been in, uh, still in existence at the time that Paul writes this letter, they were still being held in Paul's time. Every participant had to meet three qualifications, one of birth, of training, and of competition. First, he had to be a true-born Greek. Second, he had to prepare at least ten months for the games and swear to that before a statue of Zeus. And third, he had to compete with the specific rules within the specific rules for a given event. To fail in any of these requirements meant automatic disqualification. We think about, again, the modern-day Olympic athletes as having to do the same thing. They devote themselves to their training just to have a chance to compete. In the same way, a minister of the gospel has to do that as well. He has to have that same kind of discipline. He has to adhere to the rules of his calling and live by the revealed word of God as his standard. If he does, he can look forward to the prize that Paul speaks about later in this letter in chapter 4, verse 8, the crown of righteousness. And again, crown there is uh, the reward in the same way that a winning runner receives a crown. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Well, the third illustration is that of the hardworking farmer. We've already seen Paul's encouragement in the second illustration about a prize as a motivation for faithful service. The third illustration, the hardworking farmer, is even more along that line. Verse 6 says that the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Farming, again, I've not done it personally, but I know it is hard work. It, it, It involves toiling, difficult labor. You can't produce a decent harvest without it. Certainly the farmer works hard to produce food for others, but he has to first share in the fruits of his own labors. He has to be profitable as a farmer, or you're not going to be in the farming business very long. In the same way, the minister of the gospel produces fruit in the lives of others. That's his primary purpose as one who is gifted to teach and lead. But in the process, he partakes of God's blessing year by year in his own life. Uh, I can say, as somebody who studies in order to teach, I love the study side. I love the preparation side. And I feel like, as a teacher, I learn much more than my students, both because of the time that I take to prepare, but also because of the questions they ask me that force me to go back and look at things again. But that hardworking farmer also has the greater reward at the final harvest. And I think in the same way, Paul's motivating Timothy to look towards that final harvest uh, as a reward to his faithfulness. Well, verse 7 closes this paragraph. It's an encouragement to faithful ministry 
as growth in understanding. He's given these three illustrations that provide both the demands and the rewards of the Christian life in general and of Christian ministry in particular. But it's interesting. He doesn't get a lot of explanation with them, right? He just states them. He calls on Timothy in verse 7 to consider what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I, I think the figures, the illustrations, are not that difficult, particularly for somebody like Timothy that had been in Christian ministry with Paul for some period of time now. But I think, too, look, to receive the full benefit of them, Timothy will need to reflect upon them a bit. And he'll especially need to recall and think about them as he goes through the rough patches of ministry that he will no doubt have to face. He'll gain even more understanding as he does that because the Lord will give him understanding. Well, let's summarize what we learned from this section. Again, I know I've said this several times and I don't want to overdo it. Paul is especially talking to Timothy as a minister and a co-laborer with him in the ministry of the gospel. But in a sense, we're all, well, not just in a sense, we are all involved in ministry ourselves. No matter how we make our living, we're all involved in ministry in the body of Christ. So there's certainly application for all of us as believers. God has established the means by which his people are to be brought to maturity. That's the first thing that I want to summarize from what we learn. Let me read that again. God has established the means by which his people are to be brought to maturity. From the beginning of the church, his truth has been entrusted to faithful men who in turn have taught it to others and they have passed it down. This is how Christianity has been passed from one generation to the next. And this is what we continue to do today. We continue to do it until the Lord comes back. Being part of the local assembly and in regular attendance here to take advantage of this God-ordained means of passing along the truth is vital. It's vital for your walk with Christ and growth in Christ. Secondly, our paramount concern should be to please the Lord in every aspect of our lives. And that means never giving up, no matter how hard, how difficult it can be. Let's face it, the Christian life is hard. We have to battle not just Satan, but we have to battle our own flesh. We have to battle the world system. We're living really as fish out of water in many ways. And it requires the single-mindedness of a soldier, the discipline of an athlete, and the patient endurance of a hard-working farmer to stay with it. I think it's important, too, to always be mindful of the future reward. A lot of it is a matter of perspective. It's recognizing what we have ahead of us as we live for Christ in the present. And then thirdly, the Lord gives us increased understanding through the course of our walk with Christ, over the course of our lifetime. I'm sure all of you could testify to this. The longer you're in Christ, the better you understand his word, the better you understand his ways. That's just the way that God has designed it for us to spiritually mature. And it really is another argument for patient endurance as we strive to please Christ until he comes. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you've given us illustrations in this passage that we can see, that we can relate to, that we can understand. And you've told us in your word that following Christ is difficult. We recognize on the one hand that 
It's not dependent upon our works. It's not dependent upon our merit. It's solely by your grace. But we recognize, too, that we have responsibilities. We make choices. We want to be faithful. Uh, We want to be faithful in our ministry to others. We want to be faithful in a life of obedience in serving you. Lord, I just pray that you would, as Paul commanded Timothy, you would help us to be strengthened in your grace, that you would give us and keep us in that desire to be faithful in your word and faithful in prayer and faithful in fellowship with other believers. We recognize the consequences when we fail in those areas. And Lord, I just pray that you would impress upon us as a group of people the benefits of staying in close walk with Christ and walking in the Spirit through the means of grace that you provided for us. Thank you for this time that we've had together tonight, Father. Help us to be faithful in our own lives and faithful in our ministry to others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.